As we come together to read scripture this morning, uh, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 15. Our passage of focus will be John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. These are the words of God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit shall abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. May God bless the preaching of his holy word. Well, thank you. It is an honor and a privilege and a delight to be with you uh, this Lord's Day and to open the Word of God as he gives the ability. This is my first time here at this church. Uh, I've known Steve for many years. I don't know exactly how long, to tell you the truth. Uh, our church has been a part of, we know him because of fire. We... Uh, our church became a member of FIRE in 2001. Does anybody here know what year your church became a member? I don't even really remember. Uh, but as soon as I met Steve, I, I, it was just an instant connection. I, I felt like I had met a kindred spirit, even though I am ancient compared to him. Um, I, I counted a privilege to consider him as a dearly beloved friend. He and Wendy and the boys are very close to us. As a matter of fact, Spencer has been tagged by me, and I understand by several others, to marry one of my granddaughters. Anyway, uh, we have uh, one of our granddaughters. I have, I have, what do we have? We have 12 grandchildren, and uh, one of them just seems like a perfect match. And um, I've shown pictures to her of Spencer and told her this is who you need to pray about. And Steve has informed me that there are many other people who have also chosen Spencer to be uh, a son-in-law. So I guess it will be up to Daisy to capture him and conquer him. I'm not exactly sure. Steve has preached a couple times at our church, not on a Sunday morning because he's here, uh, but because uh, we have held fire conferences in our church, and, and he is one of my favored pastors to call upon to, um, to preach. Uh, I think it's fascinating that Steve, as I understand the story, afterwards you can correct me, don't do it now because it will ruin it, but... Um, that Steve grew up in this church. Isn't that, isn't that correct? Yeah. And he went away to seminary and the Lord brought him back. So he's been here in one way or another an awfully long time. Uh, our church is a little different. Our church began in our living room in January of 1985. And uh, I had big plans. I figured I'd be like the Apostle Paul. I'd stay 18 months and go to the next town and plant a church. It's been 36 years and we're still there. So apparently, uh, it's good to have plans, but write them in pencil. That's all, I can, that's all I can tell you. But again, thank you for allowing me to open the word to you this morning. Uh, John chapter 15 is a chapter that many are quite familiar with, especially the first part of it about abiding, 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 and bearing fruit and these things. 
Um, we could say that these that the, the chapter 15 could be divided up into three movements. The first one, verses 1 through 11, disciples relate to Christ as branches relate, relate to the vine. I think that's a, an accurate, uh, though simplistic, uh, summary of that section. The second section, which we just had read to us and followed along reading ourselves, Jesus relates to his disciples not as his slaves, but as his friends. That's verse 12 through 17, and then later on, which we won't be getting to, obviously, but um, the last section, how does the world relate to Christ, and how does the world relate to Christ's disciples? Well, the world hates Christ, and the world hates his disciples, and we've lived for many, many years in a land and in a time when we didn't experience much of that. We'd have to really concentrate to pay attention to the fact that there are people around the world who suffer deeply and gravely for their common faith with us having no freedom like we have had. But I think we would probably all agree that we can see that uh, things are changing here. Persecution is coming here more and more. Now it's mostly through the courts. But uh, we need to keep praying because, hey, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise. The world hates Christ. The world will hate those who love Christ. But this morning I want to consider how Jesus relates to his disciples, not as his slaves, but as his friends. When I was 15, I made one of the largest mistakes in my life. I also made one of the largest good choices in my life. When I was 15, I told that girl I was going to marry her. She laughed. We got married the week after I turned 18, which means we've been married for 12 years now. No, no, no. 36, 36 years, something like that. Um, But I also made another decision at that time. I changed my whole palette of friends. Up until 10th grade, I had had a certain group of friends, and it was a good, pretty group. They weren't perfect. Most of them weren't Christian. I was raised in a Christian home, but I didn't know the Lord. But when I was 15, I, I made a choice. I chose a completely different palette of friends. It was a terrible decision. I don't blame them for anything that I did between the ages of 15 and 19 when the Lord gloriously saved me. It was my sin was my sin. But foolishly, I chose really bad friendships. And it, and it hurt me. Not their fault, my fault. But friendships are really important. And I want to talk to you this morning about this passage, but I really want to ask you to consider how marvelous it is that Jesus Christ chooses people like me and maybe like you to call his friends. That's a very, very precious thing. In this passage, our relationship with each other is to be based on our relationship with Christ. In verse 12, and by the way, I ask your forgiveness in advance. I'm, I'm one of the last dinosaurs around that still uses the, uh, the new King James. I, I cut my teeth on the old King James, not that I think it's superior. Uh, 1985, a bunch of people who I was teaching ganged up on me and bought me a new King James because they got tired of hearing the old King James. And I still can't change from the old King James or from the new King James. So I love the reading of the ESV. I read it a lot. But um, my text this morning is out of the New King James. In verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another. And then he says something very important. As I have loved you. We are to love one another 
as Christ loves us. Jesus begins this section speaking about love. It's a relationship. And he, but he issues a command connected with that relationship. A command regarding love. So much for it just being a feeling, huh? If it's something that God, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, could command us to do, to love one another, it obviously is not based on feelings. This command, interestingly enough, he says earlier in chapter 13, verse 34, also in this upper room discourse, is not new. Or excuse me, it is new. Excuse me, it is new. You say, well, love, loving one another, that's, that's not new, is it? Well, you remember the, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And of course, we know the answer. The answer is, he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, love God with every fiber of your being, every second of your existence, which, of course, none of us have done, even on our best day, even when we're confessing our sins and say, man, I can't remember any particular sins I committed. Well, you didn't love God with every fiber of your being every second of this day, so confess that. And by the way, someone asked me once, what's the worst sin? What's the greatest sin? I, th- I think it's breaking the greatest commandment. The greatest sin may not be murder and rape and mayhem. The greatest sin may be failure to love God who deserves to be loved. But he also, even though he was only asked, what is the greatest commandment, he chased that by saying, oh, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You say, well, isn't that what this is? No, because earlier in this uh, upper room discourse, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment, and that is that you love one another. And here, he laser focuses this new commandment that is like the second greatest commandment, but it's more laser focused on a specific target group, not merely our neighbors, but one another. And speaking of the brethren, there's a love that we are to have for God. There is a love we are to have for everybody around us, neighbors, including enemies and friends. And then there's a love that he introduces here, which is a special love, laser-focused. Just You've got to love those who are the brethren. You've got to love the Christians, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And not as you love yourself, which is frequently rather selfish anyway, wouldn't you agree? But no, he says, I want you to love one another. How about this? As I have loved you. That's putting the bar pretty high, wouldn't you agree? As I have loved you. We are to love each other as Christ has loved us, as Christ loves his people, as Christ loves his body, and my favorite, as Christ loves his bride, as Christ loves his bride. How does Jesus love us? How does he love his bride that ought to inform and direct us about how we should love one another? Well, first of all, it's not a love based on us. How does God love us? He doesn't love us because we're so lovely. He loves us because he's supremely loving. He loves us when we were yet sinners. He loves us when there was nothing about us that could be commended to him. That's how he loves us. It's a love based not on us, but it's on him. So how are we to love one another? Well, in the same way. Not based on how lovely our brothers and sisters are but on being loving as Christ is loving toward us. Has anybody noticed, probably not at this church, only other churches in other probably states, are sometimes Christians can be like smoke in one another's eyes. I mean, it happens. We love one another. We're we're one in Christ, but we're different. And sometimes those differences are somewhat glaring. 
But we're to love one another, not based on the other person's performance, but rather we're to love one another because, of, because we're God's people. We are to be loving as he is loving, which, by the way, is easier said than done. Who would agree? Easier said than done. But it's a commandment. But it's a commandment. I give you a new commandment, he says. A couple of actions that help describe his love for us. First thing would be Christ's love forgives. I think of that as being like paramount because we have so much to be forgiven of. Things about God's, about Christ's love for us that, that are, tr- are wonderful and that are precious to me and I hope to you, but they also inform how we should love one another. Christ's forgiveness is complete. He doesn't forgive part of it and then hang on to a little piece of it. Let us forgive all. Let us forgive each other completely. Or else we really haven't truly forgiven. Christ's love doesn't dwell on our sins. Let us not say we forgive people while mentally reliving other people's sins every time it comes to mind, over and over sometimes. Of course, it happens even after we've said we'd forgiven someone. This is a sign that bitterness is still in our hearts. Once we forgive, though we literally cannot forget, let us not use people's past sins as weapons against them. Here's a fourth one. Christ's love, Christ's love in, in terms of his forgiveness, he never throws our sin in our, in our faces. Never throws sin in our faces. And he never tells our sins to other people, which sometimes we're tempted to do, aren't we? Probably not. Just like I said, just other people in other states, right? Oh, let us, let us refrain from gossip even in the sanctified form of prayer requests. Christ's love. This, this, how, see, we have to understand how he has loved us if we're going to love each other in the same way. Does that make sense? So how does he love us? He forgives us. And there's a couple of ideas about his forgiveness. Second, how does he love us? Christ's love seeks our good. He, he forgives us, but then he seeks our good. We cannot forgive and then treat a person as though they are our enemy. Well, I forgive them, but they're dirt in my eyes. You're dead to me. We can't do that. We can't do that. Sometimes it's difficult because we still have to be with one another. We still have to look. And by the way, we'll be with each other for eternity. We can't treat people that way. Granted, full reconciliation of a relationship does take two, and if the other person refuses to reconcile, we can't force reconciliation. But, as Paul says in Romans 12, 18, as much as depends on us, let us be at peace with all men. We can't force someone else to reconcile and become BFFs again. But we need to treat them with Full peace as much as depends on us. Forgive and then do good. We can't be deceived that we don't have to forgive unless the other person repents. If you can't forgive, listen, if you don't have it in your heart to forgive a person when they haven't repented, then you don't have it in your heart to forgive them even if they do. We need to ask God, give us forgiving hearts, forgiving hearts. We are to love because, and here's the here's why. What does John, 1 John 4, 19 say? He first loved us. Why do we forgive? 
Why do we love God? Or why do we why do we love God? We love him because he loved us. And the same translates into one another. We need to be the initiators. God is always the initiator. We are merely the responders. His love always predates our love. And and we need to love others. We need to be the, the initiators of of love and of and of forgiveness. May the Lord convict us. May the Lord convict us when there's a lack of love in our hearts, particularly if it's regarding a person or persons, but just in general, we need to be forgiving. Because if if we're going to love one another the way he's loved us, wouldn't you agree? Forgiveness and doing good to other people, that's part of the project. It's part of the package. Because he has loved us, because he has loved us, we must love one another. Romans Romans 8, 12 says we are debtors. We are debtors because of his love towards us. We owe forgiveness as we have received forgiveness. Jesus drove this point home in one of my favorite parables. This is, this is a passage of scripture that, that is a go-to, I think, for most people who do any sort of biblical counseling. Because so many, so many people's problems, when you really just listen to them and ask God, this is, by the way, I'll give you a little primer in biblical counseling. How can I help you? And you listen. And as you're listening, you're praying, God, give me scripture that will address what this person is wrestling with. And as they talk, you continue to pray. Say, give me scripture, give me scripture, give me scripture. Not my opinion, not my experience, but scripture. And then when they're done, whether they realize it or not, then you can tell them, okay, let's talk about this. And, And so often the problem is that they need to forgive someone. It is amazing how many people have problems in their lives because they're holding on to unforgiveness, not only of people in the world, but people in their own families and people in the family of God, and they're still struggling with this. Jesus drove this home in a parable. You remember what was the setup for this parable? How many times should we forgive? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. And then Jesus began the parable talking about, you remember the story, It's so important. I tell people, by the way, in counseling, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read this parable to yourself out loud every day for 30 days, and let's talk again. Seriously, I've done that with people. And in the parable, it's very simple. He he says a a person was indebted to his master with with a debt that was so great he could never hope to pay it off. So he went to his master and said, please forgive me. And the master forgave him of the whole thing. And then that servant went out and grabbed someone who owed him a pittance in comparison and grabbed him by the throat and said, you'll pay everything or you'll go to debtor's prison, which means you'll never be able to do it. When the master heard, you remember the story, when the master heard, he he called that first one and he goes, how, and I'm paraphrasing, how dare you withhold forgiveness of this man who owed you a pittance when I forgave you of a debt you could never hope to repay? And it didn't end well for them, for that man. It ended well where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a pretty tough, pretty strong uh, punishment for someone who won't forgive others, even after having experienced forgive, forgiveness. I would say that those who have been forgiven who will not forgive either just don't get it or they're not really forgiven. They're not even really saved. I'm not any particular person's judge, but in general, you can say if a person refuses to forgive after having been forgiven, 
It really draws their, their walk with the Lord into, into question. So here in verse 12, he states, It is an outright command, love one another as I have loved you. You having trouble with any forgiveness with anybody? Go back and look at how Jesus has forgiven you. And at what cost, by the way? And at what cost? Jesus goes on to define the greatest love. Don't get nervous. I'm only in the second verse, but it'll pick up the pace. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. There's only one problem with this statement, if I may be so bold as to say that. There's only one problem with a statement made by Jesus. Well, Jesus actually demonstrated a far greater love than what he said here for us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Yet perhaps, it's like we're stretching this out hypothetically, yet perhaps for a good man one would dare to die. But God, listen to this, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ clucked his tongue and looked the other way and said it doesn't matter. Does your Bible say that? Mine doesn't. Mine says, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cost to forgive us is insurmountable. It was the death of Jesus Christ, and yet he was willing to do that to show how much he loves. Jesus laid down his life, not merely for his friends, as he says here in John verse 13, But according to Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he gave his life for his enemies. Why did he give his life for his enemies? You ready for this? In order to make his enemies his friends. To make us his friends. What a savior. What a savior. By the way, let's not forget how this passage started. Forgive and love one another as you have been loved by Christ. In order to do what? He, to, he did it to make his enemies his friends. This not only describes his love for us, but it further describes how we are to love one another since we are to love one another as he has loved us. In verse 14, he goes on, you are my friends. A little bit of a parenthetical statement here, kind of a by the way. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Let me ask you this. Do you consider Jesus as your friend? Are you at peace living with known sin in your life? Hmm. Whatever I command you, when he says, do whatever I command you, suggests that we cannot be selective in our obedience. Do not misunderstand this. We do not make friends with God through our obedience. Absolutely not. He made friends through, for, with us through his obedience, in spite of our disobedience. This is the gospel, friends. He comes and he gives everything to those who deserve nothing but his wrath. But since he has made friends with us, even when we were his enemies, let us endeavor to do all that he commands. That's what he says here. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. And when, not if, we fail in this, which we do, let us cling to the cross. Let us trust in his blood. Let us embrace his grace to confess, to repent and to get back with the business of loving him and with loving one another as he has loved us. Jesus said to his disciples and us through them, 
in Luke 6.46, a pretty strong statement. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Those words are haunting to me. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me your friend if you don't even do what I tell you to do? How can we call him Lord, much less claim that we love him, when we continue in disobedience? And again, let us make sure that we always get this in the right order. His grace, then our obedience. In that order. It's never the other way around. First his grace, then our obedience. And he's already done his part. His grace has been lavished upon us, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Verse 15. And here's really what I want to talk about. All that's been introduction. You guys got a few moments? Where do you have to go? No longer, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Hmm. I have called you friends. Why? For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The word here for servant is doulos, which means slave. It means one that is owned by another. It's not just palsy. It's to, to be, to be a, a servant is to be a slave. It means to be owned by another. Because of his grace, he no longer calls us that. Now, don't jump to conclusions. I'm not going to say we're not. The reality is we are his slaves. We are his doulos. We are owned by him. We own him for two reasons. He created us and then gave us life. And then when we messed that up, he bought us back. With his blood, he owns us twice as his creatures and then as his redeemed, as the elect. We are and always will be his slaves. But this is the good news. But by his grace, he counts us as his friends. And he doesn't treat us like slaves. He treats us like his friends. He doesn't treat us like slaves, nor does he want us to relate to him as slaves, even though we know that he being God and holy and we being human and sinful and then being purchased by his blood, that we are owned by him. We are his slaves. This causes me always to think of the story of the prodigal. There's two of the two most important things in my thinking, and I hope that I'm not leading you astray by saying this. The two most important things in that parable regarding the relationship between the boy and his father was what he said when he left and what he said when he came home. And then what the father said in reply. What did he say when he left? He says, give me. This is how a lot of people look at God. Give me my money. Give me my money. I can't wait for you to die, dad. You look like you're in pretty good shape. My dad's 93, and I don't want his inheritance. I like still having my dad around. But the prodigal, he wanted, dad, he wanted dad's money, and he couldn't wait for dad to die, so he says, give me my share. So the dad gave him his share. He says, give me. And then he went, and of course you know what happened. He squandered it all through profligate living and ended up not only taking care of pigs, which, by the way, for a good Jewish boy, that's quite a job. Not only taking care of the pigs, but eating what the pigs wouldn't eat. Finally, he says he, come, he came to himself. Well, of course, we know that that's a work of the Holy Spirit. He came to himself and he thought, what am I doing? The people who are slaves in my father's house are taken better care of than I am. 
I'm going to go home. This is what happens when people are born again. I'm going home. And he made his way to, back to his father's house, and he practiced his speech. Anybody ever done that? You know, you're going to talk to somebody, and you think, okay, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that. And, and it never goes that way, by the way. It's, it never goes that way. Just save your breath. Say, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to say this, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to tell my father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me your slave. So he went back, and he said, now remember what he said when he left. When he left, he said, give me. When he came home, he was humbled. And he said, make me. Regeneration shows a person going from give me to make me. And make me what? Make me your slave. Hmm. But what did the father say? You're not my slave. You are my son. I think this is a good picture of how the fact that we, we are and always will be, in one sense, slaves of God. He created us. He owns us by creation. But then when we destroyed what he gave us, called life, he purchased us back. And it wasn't at bargain basement prices. He paid with the sons of God's blood, who gloriously rose again. And we come to him when we're saved, when we're born again. We say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me your slave. And he says, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved. You are my friend. Back in the Upper Room Discourse, what he's saying is he's not saying you're not my slaves. He says, I will no longer call you that. I will no longer treat you that way. And he, let me just ask you, have you walked with Jesus long enough to see how gently and how kindly and how graciously he treats those whom he calls friends, whom he calls his sons and his daughters? And then he tells us, I want you to treat each other like that. Who would agree that's a pretty high bar? That's a pretty high bar. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. This verse is often quoted, and I know, know I did many times when I was first converted into what was a, a, a bad, kind of a cranky form of Calvinism, where I thought the most important thing to do was to make everybody a Calvinist instead of try to get people to, you know, love Christ. I got, feel like I got saved again. You know, I got saved, and then I got saved, and then I got saved from being a cranky Calvinist to realize that the Reformed faith is the faith of a God who saves sinners and is gracious to people who deserve nothing but his wrath. That's what we deserve, but we get his grace instead. 
Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. This verse is, this, this part about you did not choose me, I chose you, that's frequently a proof text for predestination and the doctrines of grace, and that's legitimate. I mean, we're not going to argue against that. But in the context, Jesus is talking about friendship. In the context, he's talking about friendship. Listen, he didn't simply choose you to believe and to be saved. He chose you to be his friend. He chose you, brother. He chose you, sister, to be his friend. Even when you and I were his enemies. Has anybody here besides me ever been last one chosen? Or how about not chosen at all? In a previous life when I had legs that worked and what have you, I played basketball a lot, a real lot. It started because when I was in eighth grade, I was the same height I was as an adult. I just stopped growing, which isn't really fair. So I was like one of the tallest kids in eighth grade, so basketball should be my future. And then everybody shot up past me, so I kept having to learn how to play new positions. But I played basketball clear up until I was about 40, and then I realized, you know, this hurts more, that it's fun. Uh, And that the younger guys were playing with much greater fervency than I had the ability to play. But one time I was on vacation. I was in uh, with my family, and we were in Big Bear. Just to show you that I was this kind of a basketball fanatic, I'm on vacation with my children in Big Bear, and I see there's a gym, and there's an open gym one afternoon. So I took a leave from my kids and my wife on vacation so I could go play basketball. Well, I took the kids. They could play on the other side of the gym. Nobody knew me in that town. Not that if they did, they would have said, we want that guy. But, I mean, it got worse because nobody knew me. And they're, they're picking, up, picking sides for the game. And there was, five, there was four on one team, and there was five on one team, and it was the people with four on their team's turned to pick, and there was one guy left to pick, and it was me. And they said, you can have him. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> do I look like that much of a dork? They even said, you can have the cowboy. We'll play with four. And then they all laughed at me, and they said, no, nah, no, nah, come on, come on, come on. I wish I could tell you, and then I just tore up the court. But at any rate, I know what it's like and how humiliating it is to be not just the last one picked, but to be told, eh, we don't want you at all. Um, He picked you. He chose you from before the foundation of the earth, not just to be saved, not just to skip out and miss heaven or hell, but to get to go... To heaven, but to be his friend. This isn't, I mean, I'm looking forward to heaven, don't get me wrong. But salvation doesn't begin when we go to heaven. It's going to be new and greater and bigger and better and everything else. Of course, of course, of course. But we are chosen to be his friends. Wow. The God of the universe chose you and me not just to be on his team but to be his most intimate friends. Not only did he choose us to be saved, but he appointed us to go and bear fruit, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And while this fruit is ultimately from him and not from us, we're not without responsibility to cooperate. I trust you understand these things about sanctification. It is a work of the Holy Spirit, but it is a work we must cooperate with. That's why he says, go bear fruit. 
Why is fruit bearing so important? Verse 8, you've got to go back up the page. Fruit glorifies the Father. The vine dresser is the one that gets credit for the fruit, not the fruit. He not only appointed us to bear fruit, but he appointed us to bear fruit that would remain. What we do in the flesh comes and goes. Think how fleeting things are in this life, dear friends. Think of how fleeting stuff in this life is. True spiritual fruit lasts. It abides to the Father's eternal glory. The last phrase of verse 16 speaks of answered prayer. What does this have to do with friendship? Listen, it has everything to do with friendship. Is there any difference? Is there any difference in your life? And I'm not trying to say God is like you because we're supposed to be like him, but is there any difference in your life between the request of a friend and a, the request of a complete stranger? You think? If you were driving down the street and you were at the stoplight and you know, you see someone standing there hungry, any help will do, God bless. Would that change if it was, that's somebody I know. That's my friend. What happened? Pull over the car. How can I help? Is there any difference between answering the request of a friend and that of a complete stranger? I think there is. And he says, if you pray to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer you because you're my friend's. How glorious. We have free access to him. We come boldly into his presence, but of course remembering that he is still God who is holy. We not only have free access to the throne because he made us his friends, he freely answers our prayers because he's made us our friend, his friends. Don't miss the promise to answers for our prayers. In Jesus' name. I'm not going to take the time to dig into that, but let's just put it this way. It means only asking what Jesus would ask. Just simply that. Verse 17, Jesus reiterates. He says what he said in verse 12. These things I command you that you love one another. There's bookends here. He starts with, this is a commandment. Love one another. He ends with, this is a commandment. Love one another. There's a lot of stuff in between that's real important, but those are the bookends of the passage. Love one another. How much is between those bookends? Well, hopefully we've unpacked a little bit for of you. But here he throws the door wide open because of the friendship he has made with us, and he invites us to come asking anything according to his will. He promises to give us what we ask. That's assuming we're asking according to his will, which is synonymous with asking in his name. Then the passage ends as it began. Love one another as I have loved you. Do you think this might be important to him? One translation says this, these things I bid you to do in order that you may keep on loving one another. This love isn't something if you hear a, a, a mediocre sermon about loving one another you go out and you love somebody really nice on the way out from church and then it's the end no it's like this is like marching orders from here forward this is how we're to live not just when we're at church and everybody's happy and we all look fun and we all are great and how are you doing brother i'm fine how are you doing fine and then we tell other lies later this means caring for one another loving one another 
True love, if it's like Jesus' love, it just keeps on loving. Anybody here besides me glad that we never need to wonder if the Lord will love us tomorrow as he loves us today? We never have to say, give me today love because I know you might not love me tomorrow. It's never going to happen. We never have to wonder if he'll love us tomorrow. We never have to wonder if he'll love us next week. We'll never have to wonder if he'll love us in 10 years. We'll never have to wonder if he'll love us after an eternity of eternities in heaven. God loves you. Listen, child of God, your sins are forgiven. He calls you his friend. In 1910, John Wilbur Chapman wrote a hymn, Jesus, What a Friend of Sinners. I asked Steve if, if there is a closing song, then maybe we could sing that. He goes, oh, we sing that song at our church. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Listen to these words. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And that's the end of this message.